If you enjoyed listening to this series, look for the Rocky Mountain PBS series Arts District, which celebrates Colorado art in all its forms. From performing arts to visual arts and edgy outside-the-box art to culinary delights and crafts, unearth the state's creative side. Discover online at rmpbs.org slash artsdistrict. Do you love history? The Emmy Award-winning television series Colorado Experience is dedicated to preserving and celebrating the people, places, and events that have shaped Colorado. The series brings to life these fascinating yet sometimes little-known chapters in the state's evolution from dinosaurs to the craft brewing revolution. Colorado Experience explores how history has contributed to today's Coloradan identity. Discover online at rmpbs.org coex. With producers and directors in Denver, Pueblo, Durango, Grand Junction, and Colorado Springs, Colorado Experience creates in-depth local stories throughout the state. Did you know that viewers can select an episode through the Viewer's Choice Award? By suggesting and voting on topics, you could choose a Colorado Experience episode. Watch for the announcement and make sure to share your Colorado story. For more information, go to rmpbs.org coex. In this episode of Colorado Experience, paddle through the buoyant history of Fibark, the United States' oldest and longest whitewater festival. And now, Colorado Experience Whitewater. We invented the beginning of whitewater sports in the United States. Kayaking got going here and spread. It was one of the only places that you could go in America for a long time and actually compete against the top European racers. In the late 20th century, expert boatsmen from around the world came to pit their skills against the roaring, boulder-strewn Arkansas River, challenging the skills of men in small boats against nature at its best. Fibark is the oldest whitewater festival and longest whitewater race in the United States. It means first in boating the Arkansas. There's a vibe here that is special. Fibark is awesome. I love it. It's an amazing, unique tradition. The riverbanks just get packed with thousands of people. Absolutely one of the coolest things in Colorado. This race is absolutely legendary. And it's right here in little old Salida. Featuring Paul Byers known as Mr. Fibark. I did the hooligan with my kids this year, and, that, and we won the best craft. That was kind of fun. I've won the hooligan a couple times. Terry Devaney, president and board of directors for Fibark. It started off as a whitewater festival and has evolved into this quintessential mountain festival. Nate Foster, a 16-year-old kayaker. I wonder how long it would take to get from Salida all the way down to Cannon City. Mike Freeburn, Fibark Downriver Classic reigning champion. But then I won again in 2010, and so I had 19 years between wins. Ali Gober, Fibark Board Secretary and River Events Coordinator. Well, the Downriver is the event that started it all for Fibark. It's 
it's certainly still a favorite event. Carrie Hallett, owner and audio engineer at Central Colorado Sound and Fibark Sound Management. One of the bands that stands out for me over the years was a band called Hell's Bells. Mike Harvey, Bad Fish, Sup, co-owner and whitewater design engineer, and 2011 Fibark Commodore. Over the course of FibArc's history and having whitewater competition here, there's always been kind of an ad hoc effort to push rocks around and, you know, make a slalom course. Susan Jessaroga, president at the Salida Museum Association. Early on in the FibArc history, they had a queen pageant. Eric Leeper, author and FibArc participant, 1969 through 1980, and executive director at the National Organization for Rivers. There were hardly rafts. The rafts didn't get going until the mid-80s. Donna Rhodes, FIBARC historian and 1997 FIBARC Commodore and 2012 board president. In the 60s, fiberglass became available and boats were able to be sleeker and, and longer. Jack Shipley, competitor. We're usually in silver or gold, because last year we got gold, and right now we're in silver. Scott Shipley, Olympian. I grew up paddling with my family. My father grew up paddling with his family, and so it's a sort of a tradition in our family. P.T. Wood, Salida Mayor and 2010 Fibark Commodore. Back then, it was like, <laughs> these guys are nuts. we got to go watch this. Franz, Xavier, Werfmenstogler. 2012 FIBARC Hall of Fame inductee and 1966 FIBARC Commodore. I arrived in Salida in early January in 1956. I'm still here. The feeling of being on the water for me is kind of almost the only place that I'm 100% content. It's what makes me a, a whole person. Thinking about the sport of downriver, it's referred to in Europe as the sport of kings. It's remarkably difficult to do. It takes a long time to really become proficient in paddling these very tippy, very unforgiving, very fast boats. It's a little bit like being on a roller coaster that doesn't really have rails. You're all over the place, spinning and flipping. It's like skiing, but as if the whole ski slope were alive and moving. It just kind of gives you a, a feel like you own the river. Whitewater sports really began with running the rivers of the Alps, and the Germans really started the whole whitewater sport and brought it here. Whitewater river sports in America are fairly new, arriving only in the mid-1900s. Before that, whitewater rivers, although used for fishing, water, and washing, were generally considered too dangerous to recreate. But that changed in 1949, when a small town in central Colorado rallied around a race down the Arkansas River. Fibark is first in boating on the Arkansas, and it's a boat race that started in 1949. Fibark to me is like one part county fair one part X Games, and it's just a celebration of this community and the community around the river. It started off as a whitewater festival and has evolved into this quintessential mountain festival. So just anything to do with the mountains and the river, you pretty much can do during FibArc. It's music, it's 
the carnival and all the fun for kids. To a large extent, the people who started it off as just sort of a lark, almost a kooky idea, they sort of acted as a beginning ground for the sports of rafting and kayaking throughout the West and nationwide. At 1,469 miles, the Arkansas River is the sixth longest river in the country. Flowing southeast, it is one of the major tributaries of the Mississippi. Fueled by snowpack from the Sawatch and Mosquito mountain ranges, it boasts some of the highest class rapids in the United States. There's lots of other great rivers, but I think that, you know, if you were to just kind of sum it up and, and consider everything that, that the Arkansas has to offer, it's the best one uh, in Colorado in terms of what it offers for, for whitewater sport. You know, kayaking, rafting, stand-up paddleboarding, surfing. Salida is in the heart of the Rockies. And in fact, that became an advertising slogan in the 1930s already. It sits pretty much in the center of Colorado, and it's next to the Continental Divide and alongside of the Arkansas River. The major economies that led to the formation of Salida were obviously mining. Leadville had a major silver strike in 1877, and there was a big push then to follow up with additional mining activities all up and down the Arkansas River from Leadville to Salida. Of course, once the miners were here, you had to feed them, you had to house them. So then we see ranching comes into the area and all of the other additional businesses that come along to support mining activities and the families who followed. The DNRG is the Denver and Rio Grande Railroad, started by William Palmer. He came down the Front Range of Colorado, and when he heard there was silver, he headed west. When the railroad was still active in the late 1800s, the river was wider and paraded through town. The railroad sort of channelized the river through Salida in order to make more property next to the river and also for flood control reasons. There's lovely local lore to how Fibark first began. It's rumored to have started as, a, as sort of a bet between two guys. A couple of guys that made a bet who could paddle from here to Canyon City the fastest. They were in Salida, it's like, hmm, I wonder how long it would take to get from Salida all the way down to Canyon City. Through some of the best white water in Colorado, all the way down through Cottonwood, through Cotopaxi, and then it goes into the Royal Gorge, which, if you're familiar with, is uh, class four, which is harder white water, and which is really incredible that these guys did this. And word kind of spread and a bunch of other guys started to join in and you know all of a sudden it became this kind of big deal because they were going to paddle through those rapids. Back then it was like these guys are nuts. We got to go watch this. The Chamber of Commerce of Salida found out about the race and then promoted it very very heavily. And they rounded up prize money. They sent letters to European boating clubs looking for competitors to come. Switzerland, Austria, Czechoslovakia, certainly Germany. And the Chamber of Commerce promoted that and helped pay for their way and put them up here to promote this race. It was crazy. They set up parades. They set up a big event around this downriver race. Originally, they ran it from Salida all the way to Canyon City. And normally it would have been a hard race, but what happened before the 1949 race is they had thunderstorms for several days. So the waters were really high. This is the time of year that the, the snow is melting from the mountains. The runoff is the highest time of year and the most dangerous and of course the fastest. They're racing between each other, but they're racing against the speed of the river. 
1949, two Swiss boaters were in the United States with their fold boats and they heard about the Fibark boat race. Max Romer and Robert Grease came to Salida, checked it out, and they were so smitten with these western rivers that they wanted to take a film back to Europe to tell the story of what these rivers were like to their fellow boaters. So they hired a Fox Movie Tone crew. Rescue and Red Cross crews who will be spotted at strategic points along the course are given a last minute briefing. Every precaution possible for the safety of the boatmen is being taken. And there goes Reese climbing into his boat. Reese got his flag from the official starter and he's on his way. The rescue teams leave for their stations as the race gets officially underway. Here go Bill Anderson and Paul Pasquale, the hometown team from Salida. They built their boat from an airplane belly tank. Here's Reese again, finding some rough going, very rough. How they can keep up right in rapids like this is beyond me. Never mind waving at me. Watch where you're going, boy. With several obstacles in the way, the contestants had to portage their craft several times. It took the two Swiss boys seven hours. And out of the first 20 so contestants that had applied to race, they only had about 10 who actually raced and only one team that finished. And the team that finished for 1949 was Romer and Reese. And I think the two guys that challenged each other actually never got in the race. <laughs> it's a dangerous, dangerous river it can be. So you've got to be careful, you have to respect it. When this started in the late 40s and early 50s, they were paddling fold boats, which are these wooden framed kayaks that are covered in canvas. They're exceptionally delicate. They're hard to paddle. You can barely brace yourself inside of them. Half the guys weren't wearing life jackets. Very few wore helmets ever. The crazy part about the boaters in the early days was they had no no safety equipment whatsoever. They, they wore no helmets, they have no life vests. You know, those old-fashioned life jackets were not particularly good at keeping you afloat. So we didn't use them all the time, but on the other hand, we were very conscious of rescuing each other all the time. It was considered a team effort to get from the put-in on the river to the takeout without an accident or a sunken kayak. That first year, they went all the way in the downriver race from Salida to Canyon Sea, which is over 60 miles of class three and four whitewater. Hats off to those guys, they were tough kids. <laughs> they could see it, it was gonna be a popular event, and so they decided to make it an annual event. The next year, which was 1950, they shortened the race. Reese and Romer actually suggested that it be shortened and not go through the canyon and they made the race stop at Parkdale. And that too was awfully long and it took the next boater to win was Clyde Jones. He went through the whole race portaging as well and it took him 10 hours. Then the next year they decided, no, that's just too much. We're just gonna go to Cotopaxi and make the race about 26 miles. The race has now been 26 miles since the third year. We knew about the the ancient Greek marathon being 26 miles and this being the same idea on water. There was this feeling that you were in contact with people who had developed kayaking in Germany and France. When this race started three years after World War II, both Germans and French came and raced against each other. Walter Kirschbaum was a noted German kayaker. 
that was here and explored the canyons of the rivers throughout the West, and then Roger Paris, in French it's pronounced Roger Paris, who was a leading French kayaker and canoeist. Both of them had competed in Europe, and then they came here because it was sort of the unexplored Western United States, a whole new place to come run rivers that had basically never been run before. I was coached by Fletcher Anderson, who was a protege of Roger's. And Roger's won the race in the 50s when the prize money was equivalent today to something around a $50,000 prize. In 1949, a very savvy station master found out about this downriver race, and he arranged for a special train to run along the river, along the race course, and it stopped in several places, allowed the passengers to get off and watch the racers as they went by. And that special train actually ran from 1949 to 1967. They prepared lunches, and then by the time both races started, they go back on a train, so people can get actually off the train and then get back on. It was a day's trip for people from Denver to come up here, and people loved it. But the railroad finally said the insurance didn't want to cover them for that, so they finally ended up quitting it. The train, they pulled out of here in 1999. It would be great to see a, some kind of a commuter rail run through here, and I don't know if that's likely to happen, but you never know. In 1954, a boat club was formed, and the American Canoe Association sanctioned the races in America because they already had an established association going, but not with whitewater kayaking. And the first Commodore was Howard Blakey. In the early years, when the parade was formed, the Chamber of Commerce invited dignitaries and governors. And through the years, we've had astronauts, we've had movie stars, Early on in the FIBARC history, they had a queen pageant. It was just like Miss America. It was right after the war, and international relationships were important. And the Salida Chamber of Commerce knew that and brought high school girls and college girls to dress up in the costumes of those that were visiting. And they were hostesses, and in some cases hosts. They would be the ones that helped out with the festival, but it was a a lovely tradition that lasted for a long time. There was not live music in those days. There was no band shell. There was a quiet park. There were bars. The alcohol flowed freely. That's one thing that hasn't changed. There were hardly rafts. The rafts didn't get going until the mid-80s. In those days, rafts were in Utah and in Arizona and some of Idaho. There weren't many boats on the river, and it was considered a high-risk sort of thing. I was born and raised in Munich, Germany. Germany, we lost the war. So I kind of considered that kayaking cut me out of the ghetto and made a totally different life that I never envisioned. We had a good youth team going for kayak slalom, and we traveled all over Germany and to Austria and Switzerland and France and to kayak races. When Roma and Riz went all over Europe to the different countries and showed that film, and I saw that in my hometown in Munich, and I said, hmm, that looks, looks interesting in 1955. 
A friend of mine, Eric Seidel, he arranged for me, paid for the passage and paid for the trip. And that's how I come. I really didn't have the funds to come on my own. The original plan is to come over here and boat race and you go back. But then George Euler, who owned the newspaper, he came and talked to me and said if I would be interested, uh, he would sponsor me and give me a job. Sound very interesting. I arrived in Salida in early January in 1956. I'm still here. Creating something that attracted those German and French kayakers, that turned out to be like throwing a, a pebble into a pond and the ripples that went out. All the people, all the river running that developed from those first few German and French kayakers who came here, they knew it was a race to come to, and they came, and that in turn caused both Roger Paris and Walter Kirschbaum to continue living in Colorado, to immigrate to Colorado permanently, and in turn teach people in Colorado and California and around the West. 10 years later, I was Commodore for Febark. In those days, the job got to the point where it was too demanding. I had to actually stop raising. 66, when I was Commodore, we had more foreign boulders here than they were American. In those days, we didn't have cell phones and we didn't have computers. So everything had to be done by landline. The telephone company had to run lines, you know, for the judges and they call in to the headquarters. The first people that came here were racing in, in boats that were wood and canvas. Of course, the canvas was waterproofed with some sort of paint on it. The boats were just fold boats. They were collapsible and they were fragile and they broke. The original fold boats were very, very dangerous. They were cumbersome, they weighed 80 pounds. Then in the 60s, fiberglass became available and boats were able to be sleeker and, and longer. And although they were still fairly heavy, they, they were faster. We had quite a battle with the because we were still running the old fold boats. We didn't run the <laughs> kayaks. And, well, at first, but they were so much smoother and all that. At some point, they made two classifications. And one of them was for fold boats, and the other one was for fiberglass boats. So <laughs> we had two champions. The kayaks, we made them ourselves uh, in, out of fiberglass. There were no plastic molded kayaks in the stores. You couldn't buy them in any store. So it was homemade equipment. We sewed the spray covers together, first out of nylon material like you'd use on a, a ski parka, and then later out of the neoprene, like skin diver outfit. We made the, the, the rim around the, the kayak that holds the spray cover in place by putting a piece of garden hose there on the unfinished kayak, taping it in place with masking tape and then forming the fiberglass around the garden hose. I've been coming to Fibark since those days and I guess what's changed the most has been the boats made out of polyethylene. This fle flexible plastic material, they can bounce on the rocks, they can bounce in the holes. With the fiberglass, it had a little give, but basically if you hit something, you had to patch it. So there was a lot of duct tape used and that, as a temporary patch, and then fiberglass sanding and applying a fiberglass patch. Kayaking was almost half, you know, the artisan side of it, of keeping the boat in repair. It really drove innovation and participation in kayaking. It was one of the only places that you could go in America for a long time and actually compete against the top European racers. And so that 
kind of cross-pollination of technique and equipment and all of that happened right here in Salida. Well, the John River is the event that started it all for FIBARC. It's certainly still a favorite event. Having done it once myself, I don't know that I would be able to do it again. It's an incredibly difficult race. It's a marathon and the athletes have to negotiate several difficult rapids along the way, the biggest of them being Cottonwood Rapid. Anyone can race the Downriver race. They can use plastic boats, shorter current plastic boats, or they can use longer plastic boats from a decade or two ago. They're welcome to use glass boats. They're really, at this point, carbon or carbon Kevlar. And those boats, so the race boats, they almost look like a missile going downstream. When I was good enough kayaker to finally go the full thing, my dad and I would race on Father's Day all the way. There was no novice race. You either went 26 miles or, or nothing. I am 16 now. Probably the first time I was in a kayak was a sit-on-top kayak doing easy things like the Dolores River or the Animus River near Durango, Colorado. It was really easy. I was probably about six. I love everything about it. I compete against a lot of older gentlemen and it's, you know, it's really interesting because I get to hear their opinions on what they used to do and how they used to paddle back in the day. Those guys, they're really wanting to move on to the next generation because that's one of the hardest things about kayaking is getting new kids into boats. So this year's competition, the guy that I'm really worried about is Mike Freeburn. He's an awesome guy, I love him. He's also from Drango, Colorado. I'm hopefully gonna beat him, but I'm not sure. And Nate Foster's uh, up and coming. He's a really a talented, you know, young, young paddler. And so Nate and I will be going tomorrow in the downriver to be the old guy, me, and, and Nate, the young guy. <laughs> so he's faster than I am in, in short, speedy things, but I have the advantage of several more decades of paddling than him. Old, old guys tend to have endurance. I've competed before with Mike at Fibark, and uh, he's beaten me. Last year I got third, which I was pretty excited about, but this year I'm hoping for the top spot, hopefully. The first time I ever got in a kayak, I was 10. I had seen kayaking, whitewater kayaking, for the first time on television in the Munich Olympics in 1972. The slalom got a lot of coverage because so many of the other events were, were postponed because of the terrorist action. And then when I was 16, I used my money to buy a kayak, and, and the gear. And so I got my first boat in 1980. Been kayaking ever since. In 1991, well, I won my first uh, downriver race. Nelson Oldham from Aspen holds the all-time record for the downriver race with his 1995 win in one hour, 47 minutes, and 18 seconds. Andy Cora holds the record for winning the race the most times with his 11 wins. And then I did start racing again about the mid-90s but I was always getting second or third to Andy or Nelson or you know, some of the other longtime, you know, really fast guys. But then I won again in 2010. And so I had 19 years between wins. And I believe that's the record. <laughs> the best race was three years ago at high water. Andy and I were, were, were duking it out, hoping the, there was a possibility we could contend with uh, Nelson Oldham's record time. And then it came down to, at the end of the race, Andy and I coming in to the bridge side by side. And I got lucky and I, I, I won. The Downriver race is the oldest race and the daddy of them all. But there are other events that have grown up around that Downriver race. Eric Seidel came over in the 50s and he had been doing what they call slalom racing in Germany. And Eric introduced that to FIBARC in 
1953, I believe. He got enough people together and they painted sticks and strung wires and they put in the first slalom. So there was the very first slalom run in the U.S. That was a good thing for Salida. It helped put Salida on the map. FIBARC offers the only slalom race in the nation that offers a cash prize. And so we draw quite a few athletes. It's one of the biggest slalom races in the country, even though it's not team trials or a national championship. Whitewater slalom is an individual timed run down maybe 100 meters of, of whitewater. And there are gates hung over the river and some of the gates are red and some of the gates are green. They're in numerical order. The green gates need to be negotiated down river. And then the red gates are usually placed in eddies, which are the slower parts of the river. The really fast racers, you can barely tell that they are actually heading upstream. If you touch a gate, there are time penalties. And if you miss a gate entirely, then it's a 50 second penalty. The idea is to get through as fast as you can without touching the gates. It's a lot like s slalom ski racing. In 1984, I did the slalom. I peeled out of the eddy and swam the slalom course, but you know, gave it a go. <laughs> I first started competing in 1969 in both the slalom and the downriver. And in those days, the river through the town was just a, a single wide river. There weren't the rocks sticking out from the edges to make the eddies. And the water was high in the middle of June, thousands of cubic feet per second. It was fast, it was hard. There wasn't the Riverside Park, there wasn't the live music, not much of a carnival. It was a boat race in those days. There wasn't even a, a concrete path along the river. We sort of struggled through the mud and dirt. There were still trains going by in those times. It was still a mining town. But other events were added where athletics shadowed creativity. My favorite event is definitely the hooligan race. The biggest spectator sport in Salida. I mean, the football team's got to be kind of, you know, they, you can't get that many people at any event in Salida, but they're sure here for the hooligan race. The hooligan race started in 1955, and it's anything that floats but a boat. So everyone goes to see whether those crafts actually make it from the starting point down to the finish line, because a lot of them don't. The hooligan started in 1955. It was really big when I was a kid, and people put a lot of effort, like cut no slack construction, had great boats with outhouses. Chris Bainbridge and I would always do it, and it was just fizzling away, and no one was doing it. It was me and him, and maybe two other people. And then to, you know, Kitson's credit, he's like, all right, this is not right. $100. You know, so he anted up and threw $100 in it, and I, took an air mattress and I demolished the competition and got that $100. And he had a hard time letting go of that 100 bucks because it was like, I cheated. But I didn't cheat, it wasn't a boat, it was an air mattress. Of course, the idea is then the hooligan graphs get built like two stories high so that they can reach the money. <laughs>
all kinds of homemade things from, you know, a guy that just grabbed a garbage can from behind his house and duct taped it closed and holds on to it to some pretty intricate, you know, artistic sculptures that are often too big to fit under the bridge. And rather than doing that on the easiest part of the river, they do it on the hardest part of the river. All those boats hit the hydraulic and pretty much explode and everybody loves the carnage. This is the quintessential Colorado event. I've always done it. But I, I did the hooligan with my kids this year, and, that, and we won the best craft. That was kind of fun. I've won the hooligan a couple times. Oh, hooligan. <laughs> Everybody loves hooligan. Hooligan is the biggest event. And of course, last year we introduced the bike jumping into the river in between um, the heats. And that has been a huge crowd favorite. The other kind of crazy random thing we do is our running race to the top of S Mountain from F Street here from just below the stoplight to the top of S Mountain and back down as fast as you can, no set course. And they don't go around the spiral, which was a, a nice way to drive or walk it. They go straight up the front. Jack, give yourself a rest. All right, what do you think? Let's go down this hole here. You want to go first? All right. They're just bounding down that hill, and you will occasionally get some decent wipeouts. <laughs> it's 5,555 feet or something up and down. And the top guys are doing it right around 11 minutes. It's treacherous. These young guys are like binging off like mountain goats. Families do it. It's a tough race, but lots of people do it. Although the hill climb amuses participants and spectators alike, its history can be traced back over 100 years. DeLacy Ramsey in 1914 decided to get involved in a foot race up Tenderfoot Mountain, which is the mountain with the big S on it in Salida. He was a clerk in a downtown store, essentially just sort of swapped out of his clerk clothes really quickly decided to go race, ran up the hill, and ran it in a time that stood for almost 60-some years. The Ramseys were a well-known family in Salida. DeLacy's father built a palace hotel. So my best guess is that everyone knew DeLacy ran this record-breaking time going up the hill. And I'm guessing some runner at some point said, I think I can beat that. But it really started in 1974 as being an event in Fibart. And we have a Hall of Famer, Roy Hicks, who won it many, many, many times. One of our local boys, however, holds the title. More lately, in terms of boats, we have stand-up paddle boards. And that, again, has totally changed the event. Now they're standing up on a paddle board, if you can believe it. I really like all of the SEP events. SUP, or S-U-P, stands for Stand Up Paddle Boards. The Stand Up Paddle Boards really are a historical reincarnation of the way that Hawaiian beach boys used to teach surfing on Waikiki in the 40s or 50s. American tourists would go to Waikiki and these Hawaiian beach boys would hang out on the beach and, and rent surfboards and teach tourists to surf. They don't want to get their hair wet, they don't want to put their cigarette out to go surfing. In the early, mid-2000s, a professional surfer named Laird Hamilton saw historical photos and he thought, oh, why wouldn't you just get a longer canoe paddle and make an oversized surfboard 
And so stand-up paddling was born. We kind of saw that and thought, well, that would probably work on the river. A friend of mine and I started experimenting with short surfboards that we could surf these whitewater waves on. And so we started surfing here on the Arkansas and Salida. In the late 2000s, we brought the first stand-up paddleboard here and tried paddling down the river, and it was kind of a disaster. We swam a lot. Really expert-level kayakers who haven't swam out of their boat in 20 years are swimming like 50 times every time they go on the river. So it's a, it was a totally humbling activity and a new way to learn really basic skills. It was a really cool challenge. I can remember that first one, it was like pretty much people were just standing up and surfing. And then the next year when I saw it, it was like, oh, now they're doing like maneuvers and turning the board around. And it's really fun to actually see it now and see how this evolved through, you know, eight years. It's been a fun evolution. It's been a fun way to keep everything fresh. In the late 80s, the mines were closing around here. Madonna Mine in the early 80s up on Monarch Pass and then Climax in the late 80s up by Leadville. And with it, all those jobs were going away. When the railroad stopped running and the mining ceased, Salida went into a, a tremendous slump and it was very depressed. Somehow, thank goodness, Fibark remained and maybe that was its way to celebrate, but there wasn't much going on in Salida at that point. People were really struggling. Fibark struggled and people had to donate their time and donate their food just to keep the thing going. Salida kind of reinvented itself as an arts and tourist town. But the, the river itself wasn't really accessible or part of the town. And in the late 90s, a handful of guys got together and decided we'd like to have some better play features for our kayaks downtown. Riverside Park, oldest park in Salida, there was a concrete wall that ran along the top of the bank. And the theory was it kept kids from climbing down in the river. But of course, it also kept everyone else from being along the river. Over the course of FibArc's history and having whitewater competition here, there's always been kind of an ad hoc effort to push rocks around and, you know, make a slalom course. By uh, the late 90s, um, when I had settled here full time, there, there was starting to be a trend of having these whitewater parks. So you could park your car, you know, get in your boat, paddle for an hour and a half up and down, surf, play, have fun, and then take out, go right back to your car and drive home. So kind of like going to the gym instead of having to do some epic point A to point B river trip. The first you know, really notable public whitewater park was in Golden, Colorado in, in 1996. I thought, man, like this is cool. This is what we should do in Salida. Yeah, we were thinking about Fibark, but really what I was thinking about was I live here now. I wanna go kayaking every single day, but I can't just go take off for three hours every day. So really the project started kind of selfishly. I just wanted to be able to surf right in Salida and have nobody really notice that I was gone. We started a project in the late 90s. Uh, we started a little nonprofit called the Arkansas River Trust. We were able to basically get a federal permit, Army Corps of Engineers permit, to do this first play wave. A friend of mine said he should call my Uncle Fred, and so I called Uncle Fred. So I met with Fred down at the river one morning and talked about it, and I showed him some drawings, and I kind of waved my arms around. And at some point, Fred looked at me and I'd been listening patiently and he said, well, Mike, how much money do you have for this project? And I said, none. And he said, we can do that. And so I didn't even skip a beat. He just was willing to, to donate all the labor and all the material to, to do that first phase of the Whitewater Park. And so he brought an excavator down, a giant pile of rock. This is uh, the spring of 2000. And I totally freaked out at that point. I was like, what am I doing? 
I can't just throw a bunch of rock in the river. I ended up finding out the name of the engineer that had done the Golden Park, and I called up Gary Lacey, actually, on his home number. He used to get calls from kayakers all the time, like, hey, man, you should come do something in my hometown. But he heard me say on the voicemail, but he's got a permit, he's got a pile of rocks, he's got an excavator. Wait, he's doing it next week? So he called me the next day and said, I'll be up there tomorrow. We built the first feature, and that kind of kicked off the Whitewater Park. And over the course of the next 10 years, we raised money, we wrote grants, we expanded the park up and downstream. I think that really opened the community's eyes to, the, you know, the Whitewater Park isn't really just about building a skate park for some kayakers in the river. That really what it's about is, is bringing the whole community down to the river and having the river be an integral part of our downtown business district and the fabric of our community. So integrating the river corridor into downtown Salida. Historically, Parents were fearful of the river and scared their kids might fall in and drown. And now you see this generation of kids growing up, just spending all day at the river, kind of like they're going to the beach. And that's really fun to see. So now we have the beautiful path down the stream, the terraced seatings, the beaches for the kids to play, the great features for stand-up paddle boarding or kayaking, really great trout habitat. There are some monster trout hanging out in those pools. Don't tell anyone that. <laughs> And that was really kind of when downtown Salida started to revitalize. Once the river had these currents, they started thinking, oh, let's, let's stay in the current and play in what they call now play holes. And then the freestyle event is always just the world's best paddlers doing things in a kayak that you would have a hard time believing they're doing flying up in the air and flipping. I mean, how the heck do you get a kayak to fly up in the air and do front flips and back flips and side flips? And it's, it's really, really cool. There are a number of events in Fibark that have come and gone, shall we say. And one of the most memorable ones is called the Laura Evans Bed Race. It was to promote the centennial year of Salida. In the 1980s, the Laura Evans bed race was held for a number of years, but it was a terribly dangerous event. Laura Evans was a madam during Salida's early years, and this was a bed race to commemorate her. So people would dress up like Laura Evans, they put wheels on mattresses, and they would run these beds through the streets. These wheels got bigger and bigger and faster and faster, and they'd put bicycle wheels on them, and they'd run so fast that people would tip over, and it was just very dangerous. And so the decision was to not have it anymore. But there's always the hope of having it come back. You never know. The Rubber Duck Race was another event that was held for a long time. It was a fundraiser for, for the chamber. And then they let the ducks out into the river. And of course, they go flying down the river with the current. And then they tried to catch all the ducks at a certain point after the bridge with nets and people in kayaks and safety boaters. And then whoever got across the line first, that duck number one. It was fun, it, it was good for them for a long, long time. It became kind of a problem because not all the ducks were collected. So we couldn't, couldn't environmentally do that anymore. There are other events that have come and gone. There have been borough races, there have been car races. More recently, we've added more than we've subtracted. We've got mountain biking, we've got 5K run and 10K run. We've got a triple crown, which is if you win the 10K, the cross country, and the hill climb. As far as events go, my 
favorite is probably, this is crazy, Crazy River Dog. I love that event. Crazy River Dog is how fast your dog can jump into the river and retrieve whatever you've thrown to it. And of course, it's so scientific the way we time it. <laughs> it's just fun to watch. It's crazy. Crazy River Dog. I grew up paddling with my family. My father grew up paddling with his family, and so it's a sort of tradition in our family. My wife raced for Germany, I raced for America, and so one of the things we do as a couple is go kayaking, and so it's just a natural extension of, of that that we take the kids with us. I was six weeks old when I was on a kayak. We're usually in silver or gold, because last year we got gold, and right now we're in silver. Paddling here is Fib Park is always the third weekend in June, and that usually corresponds with Father's Day. It's traditional in that the events are the same, but yet it's always totally different. You never know what to expect. Beyond that is the weekend economic boost that we get. You know, we're a town of about you know, 56, 5,700 people, and we'll have 15, 20,000 people show up for the weekend. That helps us do some cool stuff throughout the year, you know, it earns the city a little money and it's great. A lot of people will build their whole vacation around FibArc. There's a lot of money that is spent here. There's a lot of uh, sales tax that is generated. It's a lot of exposure for Salida. It does chase a handful of the longtime locals out of town. They'll avoid downtown for that weekend, but that's, you know, usually folks that have been to a lot of FibArcs and they've seen it. And in the year 2000, we presented to the Library of Congress an actual history of FibArc because we were nominated by Senator Allard as one of the events to be presented to the Library of Congress Bicentennial in Washington. Right next to the Arkansas River is Riverside Park where the action is. There is now a, a nice amphitheater which through the years has been developed and that's where the music events occur and that's where all the carnivals is set around and also where the booths are. So there's food booths, there's vendor booths. The first time I did sound for Fibark was 1993 or four. There wasn't really much of music going on at Fibark. They occasionally had bands every so often when somebody felt up to it. The stage at that time was a wooden stage that uh, wasn't really all that conducive for, for music. The Rotary was running it at that time and there just wasn't much of a budget for music. Somewhere around $1,500 to entertain crowds for three days. So we would hire mainly local musicians. And we finally brought in Jefferson Starship. Once that happened, we started getting momentum and having more budget. It's always been a free event. 4,000 people, maybe more on a given night. That was a big difference from the days, you know, we used to be lucky to draw 50 people. One of the bands that stands out for me over the years was a band called Hell's Bells. <laughs> it was just a all-girl tribute band to ACDC, and I've never seen the town react like that. Fibark's always been a reunion. The music really helped that, you know, brought it, brought it together. It has evolved. We've just now became a 501c3, so our mission and our goal is to promote youth paddling 
on the river and actually family paddling on the river. We would love to see Olympians come out of this valley. FibArc is a giant fundraiser for our youth paddle program. Our mission is to promote whitewater paddle sports in the Arkansas Valley. We do that through several projects. Some are big, like the Fibark Whitewater Festival, and others are smaller. When you look at the legacy behind it all, all of the people, I can't fathom the number of people that have been involved. It's amazing when you think back over the years. Fibark is a volunteer. There was no one getting paid, and we all pitched in. It took quite an army of volunteers to keep going. Some of the old Commodores, like the Ted Riley, he was an eye doctor. Riley Barkley, he, he owned the drugstore. Howard Blakey and Ted Jacobs and the telephone company and the public service company, they all gave us some of the top people to work for Fibark. And I think that's what made it a success over the years. I give everybody credit that has been involved and wants to stay involved because it's a, it's a big deal. It's the slightest showcase. The board members are all volunteers and they come from all walks of the community. River people, we have people that don't know the first thing about the river. And so, but it takes all types to run this festival. The Commodore used to be actually a working member of the board, considered the president of the board of directors, it eventually evolved into an honorary position. It's this amazing history of folks that have been deeply involved in their community. That's kind of how you get to be the FibArt Commodore, as you're deeply vested in both the festival, but also your community. I don't know the exact number of volunteers, but I know that it takes hundreds to put this festival on, and it wouldn't be possible without people coming in to volunteer. I have one couple that they volunteer at the beer garden every Thursday of Fibark because that's what they do. And they've been doing it for five or six years. And I think they met at Fibark. Probably the first involvement of Fibark, besides riding the rides, because I had my first birthday in Salida. The first event would be the hooligan. And then I did start kayaking pretty young. I had to miss Fibark for my grandparents' 50th wedding anniversary and did not like that at all, but that's the only Fibark that I've ever missed, I think. Since I was born, I guess. Five, four, three, two, one. Now the race. This is the race that started this event. Cheer on, everybody. they got 26 miles to go. The race was terrific. There was a long, hard race today. Uh, I had some uh, wind and good challenging conditions that way. The water was low and so it was very rocky and technical. The wind was amazing. Sometimes it was, it was blowing right at us because there were thunderstorms up in the mountains. It was long, it was uh, you know, a, good, a good 30, 40 minutes longer than, than uh, when the water is higher. And here comes Nate, I think right now. I think Nate's coming through. Yeah, there he is. He's coming in for second. But really happy to, to have, uh, have finished and, and finished on top. Come in here. Oh, good job, mate. How are you? I'm surviving. <laughs> it was long, wasn't it? It's long, it was brutal. <laughs> 30 mile an hour gusts just coming right across your boat. <laughs> How'd you do with those gusts? Uh, I survived. Our etiquette is to stay in our boats until until the paddlers come down, then we'll get out. And that's kind of a safety thing. Good job, Mike. You kicked some ass. <laughs> I lost you. Oh, it's Yana coming. There she is. Oh, it's yeah. my wife coming. She's coming in next. 
It's really a great link that ties us to our past and hopefully keeps us moving towards a good future. You know it's summer when Fibark is here, and Fibark is tradition. 2018 is the 70th anniversary of Fibark. I would really, really hope that as we move towards the 100th anniversary that Fibark continues to be an incredibly family-friendly event. I really hope they keep coming up with crazy new events too. Just to know that, you know, we're paddling the same rapids that were, were being paddled then, the same flats, everything is pretty much the same for the last 70 years. And the fact that this race has gone off and been run for 70 years now, it's really, it's, it's, it's really special. The legacy of FIBARC is it's unquestionably the most significant whitewater paddling festival in the country, if not the world. To have that be in our community and to be, have been a part of it is, is a whitewater paddler is really meaningful to me. But I'm also a resident of Salida and raising a family here. And it's kind of amazing that people in this community have been willing to, to do this every year for 70 years. I mean, no one's gotten rich here, no one's been paid. Somehow our little community's been able to generate enough of those people over 70 years that care enough to put this festival on. The fact that it brings so many people who are, love whitewater paddling like I do, but it brings them to my front door is really special for me. Salida had a big influence on boat races, boat technology. From, from those beginnings, from this unusual, odd race in the, in the Rocky Mountains, run by people who wouldn't have gotten in the river themselves, you had a major foundation in the development of running rivers nationwide. This episode of Colorado Experience was written, edited, and directed by Julie Spear Jackson. The production team includes Carol L. Fleischer, Eric Hernandez, and Clarissa Guy. Major funding for Colorado Experience is provided by listeners like you. Thank you. And History Colorado State Historical Fund supporting projects throughout the state to preserve, protect, and interpret Colorado's architectural and archaeological treasures. Create the future, honor the past. To watch or listen to this or other episodes, visit rmpbs.org forward slash C-O-E-X. For behind-the-scenes photos, fun facts, sneak peeks, promos, information on upcoming episodes, community screenings, and so much more. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Just search for Colorado Experience.
Each season, Colorado Experience produces over a dozen episodes airing fall to spring. From culture and technology to people and places, this Rocky Mountain PBS-produced show focuses on the rich past that has shaped the fabric of Colorado. All past seasons are archived and available to watch online for free anytime at rmpbs.org slash coex. Colorado Experience explores the rich past that has shaped the fabric of our state. Colorado is brimming with stories. The real Colorado Experience is the one you make your own. Go to rmpbs.org to support programs like these and many more. Do you love history? The Emmy Award-winning television series Colorado Experience is dedicated to preserving and celebrating the people, places, and events that have shaped Colorado. The series brings to life these fascinating yet sometimes little-known chapters in the state's evolution from dinosaurs to the craft brewing revolution. Colorado Experience explores how history has contributed to today's Coloradan identity. Discover online at rmpbs.org coex.